The opinions and views expressed in this program do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents. To find out more about this talk show or other talk shows broadcasting on KUCI, log on to our website at KUCI.org or check out the latest program guide. You're listening to KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine and KUCI.org on the web. Welcome to Privacy Piracy. I'm Lloyd. I'm the show's engineer, and your host is Mari Frank. Mari's a local attorney and certified information privacy professional. She's the author of several books, including Safeguard Your Identity, From Victim to Victor, and The Complete Idiot's Guide to Recovering from Identity Theft. She's testified many times in Congress and the California Legislature on privacy and identity theft issues. And you may have seen her on Dateline, 48 Hours, CNN, NBC, ABC, O'Reilly Factor, and many other shows, including her own 90-minute PBS television special, Protecting Yourself in the Information Age. To learn more about this radio show and our great guests, please visit KUCI.org slash privacypiracy. Hey, Mari, what's our show about today? Well, Lloyd, today our show is about credit reports, and it's about the kinds of challenges that people have with credit reports, and we have a wonderful attorney who's actually taken these cases to court and has had um, a a wonderful recovery for, for victims of credit report errors and victims of identity theft, and he's wonderful. I've been watching all the great work that he's been doing over the years. Let me tell you a little bit about Justin Baxter. He's an AV-rated trial lawyer with Baxter & Baxter LLP in Portland, Oregon, and his national practice focuses on credit reporting and unlawful debt collection cases. In 2007, he obtained a $200,000 verdict against Equifax under the Fair Credit Reporting Act. Then in 2010, he obtained a $95,000 verdict against TRS Home Furnishings under the Oregon Unlawful Debt Collection Practices Act and a $100,000 verdict against a debt buyer and collection firm under the Fair Debt Collection Practices Act. Then in 2013, this was the big one, he obtained a verdict against Equifax for $18.5 million for his client. So we're going to find out all about that case. We've been watching Justin and all the great work that he's doing, and we're just thrilled that he's coming on the show. Justin, thanks for joining us from Oregon. Thanks for having me, Mari. Well, why don't we talk a little bit about what happened in this case with Julie Miller? Sure. So Julie Miller is a wife, mom, all-around good person. Uh, She pays her bills on time and and has done so all her life in uh, 2009, she went to apply for a line of credit uh, with her son, and uh, at the local branch bank, they pulled her credit report, and right there on the spot, she was denied credit because she had two dozen collection accounts on her credit report. Mm-hmm. Apparently, Equifax had merged her with uh, another person with a different social security number, a different date of birth, and a different address. Uh, but in Equifax's eyes and Equifax's computers, they were one person, and uh, Equifax was sending credit reports with the other person's collections to Ms. Miller's creditors. And it's especially difficult because Julie Miller is a pretty common name, but you would think that they would see that there's a difference in address, difference in social security number. How does that kind of thing happen? I think Equifax would say that there's so much data uh, 
so many uh, different people and and uh, certain mismatch of data that they have to use automated systems to create these credit reports. They can't can't uh, manually uh, create a credit report for every person on the fly. So they uh, turn it over to their computers and their algorithms. And, and I would say that for the, the majority of, of people, the Equifax credit reports are pretty good. Um, in this case, they took two people that had uh, similar but different names and stuck them together. Uh, were that the end of the story, uh, I, I don't know that this case would have come to court. The, the problem that arose in Ms. Miller's situation is that she did exactly the right thing. She didn't go racing to the courthouse to file a lawsuit. She did a very sensible thing. She sat down and wrote a letter to Equifax. She enclosed a copy of the credit report. She told them, this is who I am. I seem to be mixed with another person. She highlighted and starred the accounts that were, didn't belong to her. Sent it all in the mail uh, to Equifax. Uh, in fact, she did it over and over again. Over the course of two years, she disputed Equifax seven different times, uh, and Equifax wouldn't remove the false accounts. What did they say? What did they respond to her when she wrote these letters? Different things at different times. A lot of times, you know, I mentioned that the system is very automated, and again and again, she would get uh, these form letters, uh, these um, uh, well, as I say, form letters that said different things. For example, send more information, send more proof of your identity, uh, identify the specific accounts that you're disputing. And over time, her dispute letters became dispute packages, and she would be very specific. You know, she included copies of her W-2 form and a copy of her driver's license, copies of uh, utility bills to show Equifax that she was who she said she was. She sent copies of the credit reports with the disputed accounts highlighted. She wrote out longhand the accounts and creditors that she was disputing. Uh, but at the end of the day, Equifax just refused to take off these uh, dozens of collection accounts that didn't belong to her. And she probably wasn't able to get her credit line that she had applied to uh, applied for, correct? Right. She applied for credit twice uh, at her local branch bank and twice was uh, turned away um, because of specifically because of collection accounts and derogatory information on her credit report. Her true credit was pristine, it mm. was A-plus credit, and she uh, clearly qualified for, for a, a small line of credit. Justin, on her credit report, did it have the other person's address in addition to hers? It did, and this is one thing that's very troubling. Equifax testified at trial that uh, that it takes information security and privacy very seriously. And yet, the evidence seemed to be to the contrary. Four different times, Equifax violated its own procedures to send a copy of uh, a credit report to Ms. Miller that included the other consumer's full unredacted Social Security number, uh. birth date, and uh, other identifying information. So both Social Security numbers appeared on her credit report, hers and the other person's, correct? At different times, right. Wow. Now, it's my understanding, according to the, according to the Fair Credit Reporting Act, that they um, the, the credit bureaus have a duty 
to conduct reasonable investigations of disputed information. Isn't that correct? Right. So there's a federal law called the Fair Credit Reporting Act that applies in all 50 states. A handful of states have their own state legislation that uh, regulates credit reporting, like California and like Massachusetts. But for the vast majority of Americans with credit reports, um, the, the Federal Fair Credit Reporting Act imposes blanket duties uh, for all consumers in all 50 states. Yeah. So in, in terms of the what she, she finally found you, probably, after being so frustrated, am I correct? Right. And so when she found you, um, and you then ended up having to file a lawsuit, what were the allegations in the lawsuit? What were, your, what were you saying were her rights? Well, we had four claims under the Fair Credit Reporting Act. The first one was that Equifax failed to follow reasonable procedures to assure the maximum possible accuracy of Ms. Miller's credit report. Basically, you know, just that the credit reports were not complete and accurate. Second claim was that when she disputed uh, seven times over two years, they failed to conduct a reasonable investigation, and the statute describes what constitutes a reasonable investigation. Third, uh, Equifax repeatedly refused to provide Ms. Miller a copy of her credit report upon mm. request. Huh. And fourth, uh, Equifax was uh, transmitting Ms. Miller's credit information to the other person's creditors. And so oh. They were permissibly providing Ms. Miller's good credit <laughs> to, to the other person's creditors. Oh, so she could get credit, but, but, but the real Julie Miller could not. Right. <laughs> so, so crazy. So when you came into the case, didn't they want to try and settle the case? I mean, knowing that they, it was pretty clear what had happened? Well, I, I can't describe confidential settlement okay. no, I, I conversations, but I, I would say that there is a fundamental disconnect between the way that some credit bureaus view uh, these claims. And one part of that puzzle is that Equifax believes that it offers a good service for a good price. In other words, it doesn't think that it's doing anything wrong uh, by publishing, transmitting these false credit reports. You know, I, I always say when, when a used car salesman sells somebody a lemon, he thinks he got away with something. He knows he got away with something. Right. Equifax doesn't think they're getting away with something. Um, they, they think that they're, they're making a, a good faith effort to comply with the law. Unfortunately, for consumers like Ms. Miller, uh, that's not good enough. It, it can be the difference between uh, getting a mortgage or a car loan or a job. Right. Mm-hmm. So in, in terms of um, the the actual case going forward. Um, During the time of the trial, were they able to fix everything? So at least during the time, they they cleared up the record for her or no? Well, that was one of the interesting parts of the trial. What they testified about at the end of, uh, uh, or or during the trial, was that after Ms. Miller filed her lawsuit, they had somebody uh, in their office of consumer affairs go in and manually fix her credit report and, and hopefully permanently 
freeze it so that it doesn't get mixed in the future. Now, the problem is it shouldn't take a lawsuit. It shouldn't take a federal court case to make them clean up somebody's credit report. They should have done that the first time she wrote, not the last time she wrote. Exactly. Exactly. And she wouldn't have had to file the lawsuit if, it, if they answered her first letter and cleared things up. Let me ask you something. So you probably learned a lot, and I know we've learned a lot on our listserv about what really is happening behind the scenes. Um, how are these disputes really resolved? I mean, are there people looking at this, looking at the letters that these people are sending? What's really happening? You know, as I said earlier, everything is built around automation and efficiency. And so when a consumer uh, sends in a letter uh, to Equifax in Atlanta, uh, the contents of that letter are uh, scanned into a computer and uploaded into a database. And ordinarily, uh, what happens is that these disputes are processed uh, around the globe. They can uh, be handled in India or, in this case, the Philippines. Um, and and so you've got these outsourced vendors, these contractors that are are processing the data, um, you know, as fast as they possibly can. There was testimony at trial uh, that Equifax handles something like ten thousand disputes a day. Mm. And and this happens in in foreign countries, right? Absolutely. Yeah, and so I mean, it's interesting who has access to see this stuff too, isn't it? <laughs> Oh, See our sensitive, our sensitive data. So when you guys got to trial, I understand the verdict was 180000 in compensatory damages and $18.4 million in punitive damages. So for my audience that isn't quite sure what is compensatory damages and punitive, would you kind of explain what those uh, two different uh, sums are? Sure. So compensatory damages are meant to compensate the, the victim. In other words, it's the disruption in life. It's everything that Ms. Miller went through that she wouldn't have had to if Equifax had followed the law. That includes um, the, the denial of her credit, her inability to, to refinance her mortgage, uh, her inability to seek a loan to build a workshop with her husband, um, things like that. Uh, by contrast, punitive damages are intended to punish, and so they uh, are akin to fines um, or penalties. And so the jury, I think, really got it right. They thought deep and hard, and, and this number, this $18.4 million, uh, comes right out of uh, some calculus that was done at the trial. Equifax testified uh, that its net operating revenue is approximately... $960 million a year. Mm-hmm. And so I think that what the jury did was they did some quick math and, and awarded 2% of Equifax's net worth uh, as, a, as a, uh, a message to Equifax, to its board and its CEO and its investors, that, uh, that Equifax was not following the law and that they needed something more than just a slap on the wrist to tell them that. And so that is the purpose of punitive damages, is to teach a lesson and have people, because they get that, that you know slap on the hand, and this is a really hard slap on the hand, that they get that, that they're supposed to change 
the way they're doing business. So do you think that it will have the effect? This was in 2013. We're that now in 2014. Um, do you have any any evidence to see that they are um, responding more quickly or, or more effectively to these kinds of letters? Because I know this is what you do for a living. You know, it's early days. It's, it's hard to know right at this moment whether uh, this verdict is going to have a lasting impact on Equifax's policies and procedures. But I'm an optimist. I do these cases because I want to see uh, businesses follow the law. And I want to, to see systemic change uh, in, in the way that uh, people's lives are affected by these companies. And so I believe that, that Equifax will take action as a result of this verdict. Yeah. Now, I hear from people all the time who are either victims of identity theft or they are victims of a merged file. And sometimes it's difficult to tell which is which. Isn't that right? Absolutely. Most of the time, you know, what, what the consumer knows is that there's accounts on my credit report that aren't mine. Right. Picking apart what it is that, that caused that is often difficult, and sometimes it's a little bit of this and a little bit of that. Right. I remember one time I had a victim of, um, we figured out it was a merge file, but once the um, the other party who also was getting copies of the of, you know, my client's credit report, when she recognized that she could use the other, <laughs> the better credit, then she did indeed intentionally use it. Right. So, you know, sometimes that happens. I mean, you're kind of a low thing to do. But, um, but yeah, we have these merge files. So what is your suggestion if you, if you have a credit report for my consumers that are driving by or even the students on the campus here, if they see all these uh, accounts that they know aren't theirs, would you suggest that they dispute it as identity theft first? I think they should say what they know. In other words, the first thing to do is to, to send a, a detailed and specific letter uh, to anybody and everybody. So that includes the credit bureaus. That includes the creditors. That includes any collection agencies. That includes any resellers or tri-merge companies. Um, the the consumer can you know create one uh, master cover letter. Yes, explains the situation, you know, but specificity counts. They should uh, say exactly which accounts they're disputing and why. They should include uh, information about who they are, so that the 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 businesses that receive that letter have an opportunity to to do the right thing and to follow the law. Yes. Uh, you know, I talk to a lot of people uh, on the phone for free during the week, and my advice is always the same, is send a detailed, specific letter and give them a chance to do the right thing. If I don't hear back from that person again, I'm happy that they got a good result. If they get uh, a credit report that's cleaned up and, and corrected, that's a good result for them, and I don't need to, to take that case. And they also don't have to go through all the stress of that. One of the things that I usually tell people is if you're not sure if it's identity theft and these accounts don't belong to you, if you dispute with the credit bureaus that you you believe that you're a victim of identity theft, which you may be, then at least you're entitled to get, at least in California, um, you know, 12 free credit reports in that year and in other places, two free credit reports 
over and above the free one that you get from annualcreditreport.com. So um, that's one issue because let them prove that uh, it isn't identity theft. A lot of times the credit bureaus won't even give you copies of the other person's credit report. Right, Justin? Oh, I think that's right. Yeah. So we're in your in your client's case, you were actually seeing another name, another social security number, and the address, correct? So that was pretty clear to see who's who it was, right? Right. She had a lot of the hallmarks of, of uh, mixed file cases. She could tell right on the face of the documents. There are some scenarios that are much harder for the, for the consumer to figure out what's going on. For example, one thing that we hear a lot is that the credit report that the bureaus will send to the consumer is different than the credit report that goes to a creditor. Yes. So I think the reason that happens is because when a consumer orders their credit report, they have to jump through a lot of hoops. They have to provide a lot of personal identifying information and, and, and proof that they are who they are. By contrast, if a, a mortgage company or a credit card company wants to order your credit report, they can get a credit report with as little as your name and birth date. And so, you know, as these credit reports are compiled uh, on the fly, it may sweep in a lot more information into that, what we call the subscriber report, than what the consumer gets in, in what we call the, the consumer disclosure. Yet, you know, Justin, I've been saying for years and years, and I've been trying to get, uh, actually in the California legislature, um, a, a law that says that the credit bureau must provide a copy of the report that the creditor gets. Well, we couldn't get that done because of the Fair Credit Reporting Act, but we did work on a bill that says that um, that the creditor must provide a copy of the exact report, which there is really nothing uh, in the Fair Credit Reporting Act that says that they can't do that. But I've noticed that the credit bureaus try and set forth an agreement with the creditor saying, don't give a copy of the exact report that you get. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. So um, I've seen some of those exact reports and you're right. Oh my goodness. They have all sorts of other information on there that is very confusing to the creditor. And the creditor believes, oh, gee, you've got horrible credit. When really something like in the case of your client, they have pristine credit. So what are, what are some of the uh, suggestions that you have for our, well, we have students here at the campus, we have business people driving by. What are some really important tips that you want to tell consumers to do um, to make sure that they kind of protect themselves kind of proactively? Yeah, you know, I would say first and foremost, knowledge is power in this case. It is important that uh, the consumers pull that annual credit report and get a free credit report in all 50 states once a year. If uh, you are denied credit because of, of uh, something that's in your credit report, you get another free credit report. Uh, and um, uh, if you become the victim of ID theft, you get another free credit report. So, so take those opportunities to, to get those free credit reports and, and be aware of what's in it. If, if, the, if the person finds inaccurate or incomplete information, then, you know, the, the thing they need to do early and often is, is to dispute. Um, 
in, in we encourage people to do it in writing uh, so that they can keep copies of the signed dated letters um, so that they have their own record at home and they're not beholden to the credit bureau's computer records of some internet dispute or phone contact. Right. And then, you know, specificity counts. You, It's not enough to write a one-line uh, dispute letter that says, there's inaccurate information on my credit report, please take it off. The, the person should take the time to spell out who they are, what the information is that they're disputing, and, and why they're disputing it. And it's probably a good idea to send a return receipt requested because aren't there certain deadlines in which the credit bureaus must respond to you? That's right. So the credit bureaus ordinarily have 30 days to conduct an investigation and uh, provide a a written statement of of what they did and what the results of the investigation were. Yep, so it's really important, even though it costs you more money, to, to do that, and you can keep track of what kind of money you're spending, but... I think it's really important to put send return receipt requests and you know that they got it and then they can't tell you, oh, we don't have it in our system because lots of times that will happen. Same thing when you're disputing an account with a creditor, do the same thing to make sure that you give them a certain amount, of, you know, that you tell them this, please respond to me and correct this immediately and let me know what you're going to do. What about, what do you think about credit repair companies? People will say, oh, I'm just going to, I can't deal with this. I'll just call a credit repair company. What do you say to that, Justin? I think that there are documented abuses and problems. There are for sure uh, companies and uh, uh, people out there that do honest work for an honest fee, but, you know, both Congress and state legislatures have enacted uh, legislation uh, regulating this industry because there have been lots of problems. And first and foremost, uh, you know, the, the biggest problem we see uh, is just sort of a scattershot approach of disputing every derogatory item on the credit report in hopes that something will uh, fall off by default or by accident. And I don't think that's uh, right, I don't think that's appropriate, and it certainly uh, undermines, you know, what our clients are trying to do, which is get inaccurate information off their credit report. Right, right. So, when, like, like with your client, um, if there's an investigation, uh, I mean, if they see that there's something to dispute on their credit report, and the there is supposedly an in investigation, but that false information or fraudulent information or whatever it is continues on that credit report, then what do you suggest they do? Well, at that point in time, when the consumer has made a good written record and and a good faith effort to to get their own credit report cleaned up on their own, then there are remedies under laws like the Fair Credit Reporting Act to to bring a case in court and, and seek damages. And that's entirely appropriate. And that's what I do for a living. Right. And I know you do such a wonderful job. And for people who are saying, well, gee, you know, now my credit's ruined and I can't afford an attorney. People need to understand that if they have a good case, a consumer lawyer can take it on contingency, right? Different lawyers do different things. I handle my cases 100% contingency. The Fair Credit Reporting Act lets me recover my attorney's fees from, from the defendant. Yes. And so that's that's helpful to people who are victims. 
of identity theft who've, who've lost a lot of money or victims of of uh, credit reporting errors. So why don't you give your website so people can come and look at what you've got over there, and then it's just about time to go. Sure. The website is uh, BaxterLaw.com. Well, Justin, we are just so thrilled to have you on, and we appreciate all the great work that you're doing, and we will have you back again. So thank you so much for joining us. All right. Thanks for having me. Okay. Bye-bye. You've been listening to KUCI 88.9 FM and Irvine and KUCI.org on the net. I'm Mari Frank, host of Privacy Piracy. Join us every Monday morning right here on KUCI at 8 a.m. And visit our website at KUCI.org slash Privacy Piracy, where you can see our upcoming guests, download podcasts, listen to archived interviews, and write us about concerns that you have about your privacy in the information age. Thanks. Stay private. The opinions and views expressed in this program do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents.